0: Empty your mind.
1: I want you to listen to me. I'm going to say this again. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. And we're back. And you know I'm going to come and I'm going to hit you hard right now. Talk to me. Because on this fabulous, on this fabulous day, Dak Prescott (laughs) threw another interception. (laughs) to officially cement himself as the NFL leader in interceptions for the year and going into the NFL playoffs, no quarterback has ever won a Super Bowl and led the NFL in interceptions in the same year. What do you
0: say to that, Mr. Cowboy? Well, records are meant to be broken. and <laughs> I'll give you an example. I think the Cowboys were 195-0 and 0 or... and all-time when they have a 14-point lead going into the fourth quarter. And guess what? Dak Prescott ruined that this year. (laughs) So what seemed to be an unbreakable record, records are meant to be broken, my man. So I'm okay with that. Besides, we still have the number one scoring offense. And our defense, they're tired, but we'll see. Playoffs is a different round, but by the way, congratulations, you made the playoffs the very we last did. second. We did,
1: we uh, no, With no help from our own team, we got to go out and thank the Buffalo Bills for uh, taking care of business and uh, getting us into the playoffs when we have no, no, uh, no desire, we have no right to be in the playoffs, and by us, the Miami Dolphins.
0: You, you guys lost, what,
1: five or six in a row? So we lost the last five in a row nice. entering today. And then we won we scored eleven and managed to win. Uh who I don't know. I don't know. But we're in the playoffs, so let the best man win. Could we see a Dolphin
0: Cowboy Super Bowl? Ah uh, a rematch from night the nineteen seventy I want to say seventy one season, seventy two season, right? Seventy
1: I thought it was seventy three. Is when the, didn't you guys beat the Dolphins the year after they went undefeated? No.
0: Uh yes, yes, you're right. We ended your undefeated se- streak, yeah. Then it was
1: seventy-three. It was something 1973. like seventy-three.
0: I don't know, I don't remember. It's a okay. good question. Good question.
1: Okay. Well, we're gonna have plenty of good questions after today. We're gonna take a hard left pivot. We're gonna go in a complete other direction because we're gonna talk about something that has nothing to do with sports whatsoever this is unbelievable history and i'm howlett i am garcia and we are going to be talking about the man the myth the not so legend of jeffrey dahmer
0: Ooh, i love it i've been waiting for this
1: now we don't spend a whole lot of time talking about murderers but we do uh, dabble in that kind of thing every so often uh, we did it with Lorena Bobbitt a little bit. Yeah. Uh, I know she didn't really murder anybody, but that idea of true crime. There's plenty There's plenty of true crime podcasts out there. So uh, we try to do our own thing. But Jeffrey Dahmer is just such a unique story. And he's kind of recaptured the minds of, of America with the whole Netflix uh, series that came out earlier in the uh, Last year now. Last year. Oh, yeah. And it got... It got us thinking, and we have bounced it back and forth. Uh, but let me start with a, a question to you mm-hmm. before we start talking about Dahmer himself: Is he the most prolific serial killer? Now that we've uh, we've gone through decades uh, of superhero, uh, not superhero serial killers, uh, Dahmer just keeps the he's popping back up. Uh, we got guys like Ed Gein, and we got you know Manson, and we got all these. Uh, the Night Stalker we got all these serial killers that have their their moment uh, in pop culture and in America, in, in American culture. But Dahmer keeps popping up. Is he the the one that we're always going to come back to?
0: No, I think that, I think it's cyclical, man. I I remember a couple of years ago it was all about Ted Bundy, and then it seemed like in the two thousands it was all about John Wayne Gacy. So I, I think they all take their turns. I kind of thought I remember growing up hearing about Jeffrey Dahmer even hearing the jokes about him I could tell one of the jokes but I don't know if I should be insensitive to those people that you know went to the crime but I I think they they just rotate to be honest with you and I think right now I mean whether you watch the the biopicture film of it on Netflix or not I I think in a couple of years, we're going to forget. I don't want to say forget about Dahmer, but I think somebody else will come through. But remember, you remember two or three years ago, it was all about Ted Bundy. I mean, I I think they made like five different biopics and documentaries and feature films just based on Ted Bundy. So I kind of think they all they all rotate with each other. Which, by the way, if you did watch the Jeffrey Dahmer series, spoiler alert, they did connect John Wayne Gacy throughout that, that short series, which was pretty phenomenal.
1: Now the Dahmer series on Netflix is is phenomenal. I watched the Ted Bundy one with uh, uh, Zach Efron. Yeah. From Netflix. Yeah. And it wasn't it wasn't as good, uh. But it it, it takes me back to I'm a big conspiracy theor. I'm a big true crime uh, person. Right. And Dahmer is on a different level than Ted Bundy. I do think Dahmer. Uh, there's something about him that. It, it gets under your skin a little bit uh he did things that were very characteristic of somebody uh, of his uh, of his ilk of his you know that that would commit those kind of crimes mm-hmm. he had a certain type of person he went after a certain group of people yeah he kind of stuck to uh the same mo it was just the the way he did things right. that gets under your skin a little bit uh, for those of you who don't know uh he ended up committing 16 homicides killed 16 people yeah. and uh he was on trial he was convicted of 15 of them uh, but it was the way that he did it uh he mutilated uh he ate some of them mm-hmm. uh, it all you know it's just it was all over the place and not quite the same level as ed gein ed gein is isn't he the one that they based the texas chainsaw yeah. massacre yeah yeah he used to make he used to take body parts and make uh, like lamps lampshades and things out of them I and mean, that would be the, he'd be the, the Mount Rushmore. That's, that's when we talk about serial killers, that's the gnarliest, the gnarliest one I could think of is Ed Gein. Right. But, uh, Jeffrey Dahmer's up there. It gives me a the Hannibal Lecter vibe a little bit.
0: Well, for those, those 16 lives, uh, he would be convicted for what? I think 950 something years in prison before being killed in prison when he was at the age of 34, I believe. I, I'm not really sure. Um, I mean, I hate to compare crimes, which one's worse, which uh, murder is worse than the other. But when you look at what he did, that, that's kind of what I grew up on. We heard all the jokes. I remember one of the jokes. I'll just go ahead and say it, but I'm not trying to be. In- one of the jokes was, what did they find in Jeffrey Dahmer's shower? Want to take a shot at it? Oh, I've heard this one. I think I've, I've told this you one before. What did they find in Jeffrey Dahmer's shower?
1: I don't know. What, what do they find? Head and shoulders. Oh, that is bad. That is bad. We're, we're going to get canceled. Yeah, But we're it wasn't my joke.
0: I did not create the joke. But the reason why I'm saying the joke is because growing up in the 90s, we heard, I remember hearing that specifically like in elementary school and junior high, just the gruesome murders, even in the small town of Texas, the border town of Texas where I'm from. Where we, where we were used to getting national news a month later, when it was already old news, we heard it fresh, pun intended, about his heinous crimes. And I don't know, I mean, does he belong in the lore of worst uh, serial killers of all time? I agree with you, absolutely he does. I mean, when you think of the word sinister, I think of Jeffrey Dahmer, completely.
1: When you think of serial killers, uh, you always you always think of like kids who killed cats. They grow up to take advantage of, of uh, the, a weaker group of people, or or they have a certain kind of uh, they have a certain kind of victim. He fit all of that. He fit all the, those MOs. Uh, everything, you know, all the murders he committed were all linked in some way to a. Uh, uh, the gay community, right? Uh, right. The African American community. Uh, he used he used this idea that there are these infringed uh, groups of people, people mm-hmm. that really law enforcement and society don't care about or don't protect, right? And and that's who his his victims were. Yeah. I've heard a lot of talk. There's a couple of, of uh, people that I talk to on daily a daily basis, and when that that documentary came out, they were trying to boycott it. They were saying, "Hey, don't watch it, don't watch it." Cuz you know, there I I work with African American people and I work and I'm around African American people and they're like they they make the African American community look so bad. Mm-hmm. But that's what Dahmer did. He took advantage of these uh a group of people that society didn't protect. Right. And I know it sucks to say, but you've got a a middle-aged white guy. Mm-hmm. Well, not really middle-aged, but a normal-looking white guy, and then you have these victims. And who is going to get the benefit of the doubt if there's, you know, if there's no, no evidence pointing, you know, the smoking gun right. m- pointing to a smoking gun? And that's what Dahmer did, and that's what he took advantage of. And that's what I, like you said, it makes him a little bit more sinister. Because how do you do these kind of things and not think about that? Like he took advantage of this knowing. Right. These kind of things.
0: It's interesting you bring that up about how minority communities, uh, the African-American community, the gay community, the minority communities that he was taking over or taking advantage of. Yeah, you're right. They were definitely overlooked and they still are to this day. The crimes that are going on live on TV and the protesting every day. But there was an example where I honestly thought that too and the the movie you know you know movies they tend to make over exaggerate what really happened but there it, it is documented that one of the people he took advantage of i think his name was uh conorac uh synth Somphone, if i'm not mistaken he comes from uh southeast uh, asian uh heritage he's
1: he from La- he's from laos laos it's there it's you, very very you go i was thinking
0: indonesian but yeah he was from laos and You know, he managed to escape after he was being drugged and the cops would end up, you know, putting him back in. Like he he took Jeffrey Dahmer's word that, you know, I'm going to take care of him. I mean, we just had a little bit of a night, even though I think he was a minor, if I'm not mistaken. And he I, was he
1: was stir- he was thirteen. Yeah. But I want you to think about this for a second. It's the late nineteen eighties. Yeah. You have a grown man and a teenage boy, and he said he's and he told the cops that this is my boyfriend. Right. Now, being oh, gay right, wasn't right. being gay at the time wasn't quite okay, and the cops were more susceptible to turning that blind eye than dealing with the idea that we have two gay guys here and they basically said okay go do your gay thing somewhere else right. and they completely didn't acknowledge that there was a crime going on but that's just the that's just how society was at the time and that's the the shittiness of this story
0: what is that go ahead um, What just really i mean yeah you can say that it was the time and i agree with you it was the time you know, a lot of the straight people back in the late 80s and early 90s and even beforehand, if they saw anything that was like what they considered to be homoerotic or whatever it is, they kind of just ignored it or they were vocal about it. And I think these cops they were, were just trying. were completely against yeah, it. or completely against it. You're right. And I think these cops were like, you know what? Let's just ignore this whole thing. And if I'm not mistaken, the cops actually escorted him. Back into the apartment with Jeffrey Dahmer, and he would be killed later on that day, as kind of like a punishment or some kind of weird fetish from that that kid from Laos. Um, but yeah, I mean, unfortunately, during this era, you see the underrepresentation that these that these uh, minority people uh, were going through, and unfortunately, it costed them when it came to the monster that is Jeffrey Dahmer as well. Because you you got to look at it also, I'm sorry, you got to look at it also. Go ahead. In the apartment building that he was living in, you know, it was in a uh, minority-driven neighborhood and, you know, even to this very day, those minority-driven neighborhoods, I was raised in those minority-driven neighborhoods, are often ignored. And I think that is exactly why Jeffrey Dahmer was able to, I guess in a weird way, continue his, his streak of killings because he knew he found the demographic, he found the places where he could commit his crimes and not have to worry about anything ever happening. I mean, what would happen in your apartment if it reeked of carcasses or something smelling very badly? I could guarantee you the super would be up there as soon as possible and the cops would come over to see what would happen if you lived in a, in a better, richer, affluent neighborhood versus back in the days where Unfortunately, you live in a minority, even to this day, like I said, often it's ignored. And I think Jeffrey Dahmer took a, knew that, and he took advantage of that weird type of system.
1: Yeah, it's. I think that is the worst part of the story. And like I said, there there have been calls uh, from people that I know that have, that have said to boycott the series. But it's not so much the series itself, because that actually happened. Right. That was the truth of the situation. Right. And if you can't... And it's a big – as a history teacher and somebody that teaches a lot of these, these things that happen in, in the, the annuals of history that we don't like to look at, right. we, we want to ignore, some of the, the worst things that happens are the best teaching models. Right. It's hard to change these things in American society if you're afraid to look at them. Right. If you're those two cops that see these two gay these, these two gay men and you just want to turn a blind eye r- r- rather than <laughs> confront the situation, then that's kind of on you. That's on you 100%. Because right. when you're faced with something you don't want to see but it's still something that you need to take action, then you got to take that action. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, even in today's world, Mm -hmm. what, 40 years, 30 years
0: after Dahmer did these things, we still see the same things happening. You know, a few weeks ago, yeah, you're right, a few weeks ago one of our earlier episodes was was on the BTK killer. And what fascinated you and I about even doing an episode about him was that he went, what was it, 20, 25 years in between murders? His first murder to his second one? And... What I find interesting is that kind of also happened with Jeffrey Dahmer. He would go 10 years from his first murder when he killed this 18-year-old kid. Uh, his name was Stephen Hicks by smashing his brain with the with a, with the dumbbell. A
1: hammer. Yeah, dumbbell. There you go.
0: And it was actually represented in the movie. And he wouldn't kill anybody, but he would have that taste or that lust and desire to want to do it again. And he would often refrain from doing or committing another murder. And for Jeffrey Dahmer, I want to ask you a question. If he didn't really eat the people, or eat the body parts, I mean, he's the one that even said the first time he ate a human, or part of the human, he said that it tasted like filet mignon, right? Do you think he would be as infamous as he is today? Or did that take it to the next level?
1: I think... uh that is what takes it to the next level uh it's what takes ed gein to the next level it's what separates a normal killer from somebody who's truly demented somebody that has uh it's almost like that that off switch has been completely uh disabled yeah Uh, for you to not just to not just murder a person but to then mutilate the body to eat the body uh to have sex with the body, to do things to a, a, a dead body, that's that takes that's just next level. Mm. Uh, yeah. I I don't think that he would be looked at in the same way if he didn't go beyond the murders. Well he, he uh, there are- he,
0: he would he would try to go I mean, yeah, he tried to zombify. He would have, like, these zombification experiments on these bodies. He would, like, drill holes into their skulls and, you know, pour in uh, hydrochloric acid, you know, thinking it would turn into a zombie. Um, If I'm not mistaken, he did it to the kid from Laos as well. And that's why they were more, when when they were kind of, snapped out of it, they survived the drilling through the head. And that's when Jeffrey Dahmer would take over and just finish the job completely. He's like, oh, my zombification uh, experiment isn't working on, he did it on two or three people. And so he had to finish the crime and completely kill them after that. So I agree with you. I think um, him mutilating the bodies and taking it further by eating and dissolving the bodies, putting them in these big old blue uh, bear plastic barrels. I mean, it just shows you what was he thinking. What was on his mind? Why would he take it that far? And I don't know if it goes to the animal mutilation he was doing as a kid. You often hear that from from therapists that, is, that say that's a, that's a big sign. But I don't know. I, I think he... Uh, the extracurriculars he was doing to the bodies it it is you know it's unforeseen to be honest with you because there's there's plenty of of
1: serial killers that have that have murdered more people than Jeffrey Dahmer but we don't even know their names Uh, because I do think that there's one thing there's there are murderers Mm -hmm. there's people that for whatever reason they do their things, right. whether it's because they hate a specific group of people, uh, kind of like a, I'm going to, I'm going to say this and I know that I'm going to get steamrolled. I'm going to get destroyed, but kind of like a Hitler complex where you just have that, that you have so much hate for hatred for a group of people that it compels you yeah. to, to do, do bad things. Or you just are psychologically and mentally damaged where a human being's life just does not mean that much to you that your actions are are more important than
0: the consequences let me let me uh pivot on this conversation a little bit and when he would go to prison he would serve almost he, he got sentenced to 950 years in prison he would only do a few years but One of the underlining things that you and I that I also I'm sorry that I also find very fascinating is the the fascination the public has on these people. He he was able to raise twelve thousand dollars from his fans in prison. I think Ted Bundy had another thing. The had another um, had people saying had women you know like a fan group in in prison. As well, the the Night Stalker from Los Angeles, same thing. These good-looking guys. What do you think about that? How they get this this acclaim in prison and are kind of like they get that second life that they never would have thought they would have had on the outside of this fandom on the inside of prison after these these uh, crazy heinous crimes. Because uh, people, I
1: think it's because people are are sick and demented and that always blew me away <laughs> that girls will throw themselves at the feet of these serial killers knowing the bad things that they did Indeed. and it's just something that it's something that attracts attracts them to and you, I don't you said something during the uh, we talked about this the last time because you've, you've brought this up before but uh, you have a saying what was it I'm trying to think of it real quick hmm Give me a hint. Remember, you, you brought up that that women will visit a man in prison, but men will not visit women in prison.
0: Oh. <laughs> no! That's, that's actually a comment, a joke from a comedian. I don't remember the comedian. He goes, what separates men from women is women will visit men in prison and men will not visit women in prison or something like that. But And I think that it does work well in this situation. Mm-hmm.
1: There's something that a bad boy complex – some women are attracted to to somebody that, that is outside the inner circle. It's off on the outskirts. And there's something that lures women to that, that spectrum. And Jeffrey Dahmer falls under that spectrum. Hmm. Uh, he's somebody that doesn't obey the rules. There are no rules. Obviously, the the most significant rule that's ever been created are unalienable rights. Life, the right to life, right. and he obviously doesn't give a shit about that rule. Right. So when you when we talk about rule breakers and people that do whatever the hell they want, Jeffrey Dahmer falls into that category. Maybe some women are attracted to that. He has no he has no restraints. There are no rules in society
0: that can contain him, and that is sexy, I guess. Um, I can't I can't deny that. Um, I guess to close on this, the the Netflix biopic, did a great job connecting uh, John Wayne Gacy to Jeffrey Dahmer. The day that he was baptized, because Jeffrey Dahmer would find religion in prison, and the day that he got baptized was the actual day that Gacy would get executed by lethal injection, if I'm not mistaken. And I think the movie did a great job of, of showing that, the connection that they had towards each other. Um... At least for me. So, and also, the other thing I loved about that documentary was the performance of the dad, Richard Jenkins. Did you, did, I don't know. I feel I feel like Richard Jenkins in that biopic, like his sons, I don't even know if he has sons or not, or his children, or if he even has any kids. I feel like his kids put him through war <laughs> because the emotions that he let out, On the Dahmer character, it felt so genuine, and I was like, "Man, this guy has gone through it. He knows his feeling." That these I did,
1: I, I did think that the dad was one of the better characters. Mm -hmm. Uh, The whole, if you haven't seen it, spoiler alert: uh, the whole first part where he's just trying to provide something fatherly and genuine to his son right and they connect in a sick kind of way that he just completely is oblivious of right which as a dad myself i i feel for that guy because he's just trying to be a good dad Friend and it's connects. something that he exactly and it turns out to shoot him in the shoot him in the foot so to speak and oh, man being a dad and if i ever had to have that if that feeling ever hit me like oh shit this is all my fault yeah I created a serial killer, and I didn't even realize it was happening. And how do you deal with that? That actor, phenomenal. You could see it. You could see it behind his eyes. Mm -hmm. That, like, he never he never gave that away. Mm -hmm. Like the first half, it genuine fatherly fatherly connection, and then just that switch. And when he realized that uh, his son was Jeffrey Dahmer. Right. Right.
0: I mean, I think that's for any, any crime, any criminal, even somebody that's not even a serial killer, somebody that just serves any kind of prison time. I imagine the father and the mother, the family, just ask himself, what did I do? Because you even see in the movie, Richard Jenkins tells him before he goes to prison, hey, this is my fault. This is on me. Okay, I should have never trained you how to do taxidermy and all that stuff. And he took the responsibility to kind of reprieve his son, Jeffrey Dahmer, who was about to go into prison. And I think any father or mother or sibling would do the exact same thing. And I think Richard Jenkins, Jenkins his performance, I just think he went through real wars in preparing for this, in this role as the father of Jeffrey Dahmer.
1: Well, that's a great transition because our Mount Rushmore... For this beautifully crafted Jeffrey Dahmer episode is the greatest biopics of all time. Mm -hmm. The greatest movies, films, uh, forms of entertainment based on an actual person. Now, we didn't really talk uh, too much about our process and what we were going to pick and choose from. So let me ask you, you can explain the... Uh, the thinking that you had behind why you wanted to do
0: this topic for our Matt Rushmore well there's you know we talked about a little bit earlier they've done many biopics on all these serial killers they do a lot of them on all these true crimes and for some reason I thought Dahmer was kind of forgotten maybe that's a good that's good that he was forgotten a little bit not to the families of course but when they brought it back i just think the biopic that netflix created about jeffrey dahmer i think it touched up on the emotional part it connected you with the neighbors the the from uh from the community that was living in the in the apartment complex that he was uh doing these heinous crimes in which by the way the actress, Nisi Nash, I forgot the name of her character. Uh, there was a little bit, they took a little bit of liberty there. She supposedly, the original actress, actually lived in the apartment across the street or down the street and would see the irregularities that Jeffrey Domery was doing. But, like you were saying before, the cops, the, the, the politicians in that area just ignored her completely. And unfortunately, more lives had to have been lost. But, um... That's my reason for the biopic. I think the biopic, it wasn't just a great phenomenal film and direction and picture. I think the acting was sensational. And I think we should further, uh, go a little bit further on our Mount Rushmore today as to why or which biopics are the greatest films or greatest biopic movies or films of all time, yours or
1: okay. Now I love talking about film, and that's one of the things that I think we became friends talking about is this idea of uh, what makes a good a good film. You have spoke a bunch of times about going trying to go getting into the film industry. Uh, I come from a family that has some people in the film industry, so. It's this is something I really like talking about, mm-hmm. and I will never ever turn down an offer to talk about any kind of list that has to do with best of the best when it comes to some kind of film. And I was excited when you said it, and I'm excited to uh, give you my four. Right.
0: As a matter of fact, a lot of our podcast episodes, you know, we, we go into the film. We often compare it to, to movies. We do it when we did the D Day episode. What we talk about? We talked about Saving Private Ryan. When we talked about Hitler. We talked about uh, Schindler's List. Uh, we talked about the book *Night*. I mean, so there's a lot. I don't know. I I think uh, this is gonna be a fun one. So I went so first do last you time. You want to go first? No, I went first last time. Why don't okay, you go? Then first?
1: I'll go first. Okay, so I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna put an asterisk on all four of mine mm-hmm, to start with, mm-hmm. because just like I do every time. I didn't go with the ones that are universally loved. I went with the ones that I thought were beautifully crafted and tell a coherent story. And that they did character development really well in terms of the person they're trying to portray. And my my number one, my Thomas Jefferson. We're going to go Jefferson first. In 2011, there was a film that depicted... The general manager of the Oakland Athletics, Billy Bean. Oh. That movie was named Moneyball. Yeah, Moneyball. We've talked about it a couple of times. I'm, uh, I'm still working on that that book. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know that you might. We, I was, I was. You bought me Moneyball last year. I already had a copy of it before. I just couldn't find it. Uh, but you bought me Moneyball last year. This. This movie tells the story of uh, an underdog. It's a classic underdog story. The Oakland Athletics are a small market team. They only have a certain amount of money to uh, to fund their organization. And they cannot compete with the big franchises like the New York Yankees, your team, uh, or even some of the bigger juggernauts that are upcoming, like the, the LA Dodgers now spend hundreds of millions of dollars a year. The Mets just dropped like $800 million this offseason. The Oakland Athletics cannot spend that kind of money. So they brought in a general manager named Billy Bean mm-hmm. who had this new idea, if we can't outspend them then we have to pivot we have to do something that goes against the grain when it comes to creating an organization that can compete and he was successful he he altered the way that major league baseball uh operates you no longer can just go out and buy the best of the best players the yankees can't just go out and buy the the best 25 guys and win every single championship because there's he found a way using mathematics using statistics uh, using analytics to compete and I love that story it's it's I know it's a baseball story but uh, it's probably the thing that put Brad Pitt on that 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 next level hierarchy of Hollywood actor uh, who knows if he would have been in once upon a time in Hollywood or some of these big uh, big award-winning films if he didn't do moneyball so Moneyball is my number four.
0: I like that pick. And, you know, the Billy Bean, the whole analytics thing, that would end up becoming, like, a bad word throughout sports because then every team, every, almost every sport has their own variation of analytics. Look, we started talking about uh, Dak Prescott with the most interceptions, the touchdowns, and all that stuff. And there's analytics, analytics based on that. There's, you know, I mean, and what he started with baseball would filter down to all different sports. But going back to the movie in process, I think that was more of a coming out party for, who was it, it was Jonah Hill, right?
1: Yes, Jonah Hill went from the super bad kid to uh, an actual uh, acclaimed Hollywood actor. I mean,
0: since then he's been nominated for best actor, what, two or three times? I mean, this is the movie where he would purposely get away from those uh, slapstick comedic roles for being the chubby guy to now becoming a serious actor. And I think it was more of a catapult for him than Brad Pitt. I think what it did for Brad Pitt was show his uh, diversity as an actor. That's saying that he could play different roles instead of just the hot guy, the good-looking guy, that he can actually play an intellect, just a polo t-shirt-wearing guy and relay the message of the film. So I like your number four
1: and I appreciate your like what is your number four
0: okay I went personal on this one because most of the audience will be like okay that's pretty dumb but I am going personal and I am going with the movie Selena (laughs) (laughs) and actually
1: doing research on this Selena did pop up on quite a few lists oh really really Uh, yeah you're not you are not alone with your love for Selena
0: well, we, you and I just talked about with Moneyball how it, it popped the careers of Jonah Hill and, and Brad Pitt, right? More so J- Jonah Hill than Brad Pitt. But, in my opinion at least, what this did was actually give J-Lo one of her first big roles ever. I think it was her biggest role ever. And, you know, the movie was a little bit too cartoony for me, but... I come from, you know, the Mexican-American culture. And, you know, funny funny enough, we talk about, we were just talking about with the Dahmer how groups in America don't get the representation they deserve. Well, you know, in the 90s when this came out, we were excited, the Mexican-American community, because we're like, whoa, like they're actually making a movie about one of our stars that we like. And it had the... The, the same actors, that the same Mexican or Latino actors that are in every single Latino movie because apparently in Los Angeles there's only five uh, Mexican <laughs> or Latin actors in the world. But anyways, they all appeared on Selena the movie and it gave J-Lo, it took her out of that dancer role that she was a dancer to begin with on the TV show, a living color phenomenal show of all time. And it put her on the stage and and she even says herself it wasn't for Selena her career projectory could have looked a lot different than what it is today but going to the movie personally it was a little cartoonish um, but it did touch on a lot of anecdotes that the Mexican-American and Mexican community go through and you see the journey that Selena went through as from a little girl from the hardships that her family went through, that her, the sacrifices that her father went through, um, to unfortunately her untimely death uh, when she was murdered in a hotel room in Corpus Christi, which is where the most, which is where the majority of my family was born and raised, and it did a good job connecting it. That's why I have it as my number four. Now I I do
1: like Selena. I've seen it a bunch of times. I I personally think that Jennifer Lopez is a little overrated, but I love Edward James almost and I'm not going to lie, he's always been one of my favorite actors ever since Stand and Deliver. So any movie that he's in I'm I'm down oh, for. Stand and Deliver uh,
0: fantastic.
1: Yeah, and uh for those of you who haven't who have not seen Selena, he plays her dad right? and it's a it's a very traditional uh celebrity story where you have the one father or the one mother that pushes pushes the kids in a, a direction because they could see the talent they could see you know the meal ticket so to speak right and I mean it's it's the same story you see with like the Justin Biebers because I because I don't know Selena could have been that level of uh, of celebrity if she hadn't been she hadn't been
0: killed I remember, she was on that trajectory I remember she did a singing role one of the Johnny Depp, your boy, one of the movies that he did in the night, I forgot the name of the movie, I think it was the DeMarco movie, I could be wrong on that. Um, she had a singing role in that, and they were calling her the Mexican or Latina Madonna beforehand, and even Madonna was like, she she was it, she had the look, she had the flair. I mean, where you and I teach in Oak Cliff, right across the street from where we teach, where you and I walk Is to- that mural. Yeah, to go buy our football cards, was a big old mural of Selena and to this day it's already been what almost 30 years since her death that she's still idolized and they memorialize her all the time and little girls I have a picture of my my niece sitting on the hood of my car singing at the age of two or three years old singing Selena songs and she had a profound impact and the movie did a good job in my opinion of of Expressing who she was in that short little time frame she had in her success. So that is my number four.
1: I like that. It's a good one. It's a good one. It's very uh very you yeah. being from South being from South Texas. Right. I get it. And I, I, I respect that. Okay. All right, number three. My number th- my number three is kind of an eclectic pick. Uh I brought it up to a couple of people and Cause you know I like to shoot my my list across a couple chosen people before I, I tell it to uh, Garcia here, but they had never seen this, mm. so we'll see. I'm sure you've seen it. Uh, catch me if you can. Oh, I Steven love that Spielberg. movie. <laughs> Steven Spielberg movie from uh, the early 2000s. Right. I uh, I'm not. I was I was not a Leonardo DiCaprio person until the last let's say five or five or six years. Uh, this is one of his, the big early ones that I actually really enjoyed. And I love Tom Hanks, and it might have been that 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 dynamic between the two. But for those of you who have not seen Catch Me If You Can, uh, it's done by the one of the greatest filmmakers of all time, Steven Spielberg. Uh, so it's got some acclaim behind it. But it's about uh, a guy named Frank Abagnale. Abagnale. And he started he started his crime spree uh, in his late teens he started to forge documents Uh, he started to forge checks and he he would go on to become one of the 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 greatest bank robbers in the history of the United States Uh, and Tom Hanks plays a, a FBI agent that's in charge of hunting him down well the reason why it's called Catch Me If You Can because this guy was so good at forging documents he ended up Forging his way uh, as a pilot, a co-pilot for major airlines, yeah. so he can literally he can literally walk into a bank, rob it with his forgery skills. Right. Go to an go to an airport, dress as a pilot, get on an airplane, and be in a completely different city by the end of the day. And true story, true story. Uh, it's long. That was, that was my, the only complaint I have about this film is it's long. Right. It's a long movie. But Tom Hanks, Steven Spielberg, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, phenomenal movie.
0: I love that pick. I've seen that movie about five or six times. And I don't know, the chase, the, 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 Steven Spielberg, I mean, he's a master of creating pictures where every scene is rhythmic to the nuances of the film. And in that movie... He just does it, 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 the pace of that movie, the, and the the inches that Tom Hanks from time to time just barely misses them. I mean, it's kind of cliche from the old TV shows back in the day, like the Mission Impossible TV shows back then, where they're always trying to capture the bad guy and they just miss it. It had that feel because you know it was during that era, the '50s and '60s, and Steven Spielberg did a masterful job, a masterful job of creating that essence of that old school type of uh, filming and storytelling. And you, yeah, go ahead. You bring up the chase.
1: Right. And a lot of that, I, and I remember it's, it's, it's vivid. Uh, The, the, the score, the soundtracks done by John Williams. Right. So I think a lot of it has to do with the, the tempo that Spielberg, he, he builds up Mm Mm-hmm and it's just amplified by the soundtrack, by the the music, the score. Uh, yeah, but you're, you're 100% right. Spielberg is a master of, at his craft. Right,
0: definitely. I mean, he's, he's one of the GOATs. I mean, we, we could do a whole episode just on Spielberg and his movies. I, so uh, I like that pick for your number three. The question is, is it better than my number three?
1: Oh, well, it, might, <laughs> I th- it is 100%. I'm not even going to lie to you. My list is 100% better than your list. Okay. You're a, co- you're a Cowboy fan. It's
0: true. It's true. Which is why I am doing the biopic of the Dallas Cow... I'm just joking. Um, <laughs> which, by the way, they did have one. It's called North Dallas 40, by the way, based on the Cowboys. But we'll talk... I didn't have them on my list. Okay, so my number three is... Ray. Ooh. I saw Ray... Uh,
1: it was on a list right next to Ali, mm-hmm. and I couldn't decide which one was better, uh,
0: so I didn't pick either. Well, look, Ray, I, I was raised on listening to Ray Charles, and when they made the biopic of him, I couldn't wait. And to be honest with you, they got Jamie, this would be another movie that catapulted Jamie Foxx and his career to what we know that it is today. You can honestly say that Jamie Foxx is probably pound for pound, if we wanna go that route, the most talented actor that there is today. And it stems from his early career from being a comedian to uh, being a musician to, of course, his acting. And he was a pretty good athlete. He was a pretty good uh, football player in Dallas growing up in high school, if I'm not mistaken. What this film did is showed you the levels that he could go. Not only did he, I thought, in my opinion, they made him look and the way he mimicked Ray Charles, but his voice, he could sing. And he played the piano. There's footage on YouTube that you can see today where Ray Charles and him, they're they're learning from each other. They're playing together. And... Jamie Foxx totally personified Jay, uh, Ray Charles and I think he would win Best Actor for it and that would be the jumpstart to the career that we see Jamie Foxx today and that's why I have him as my number four. The movie um, as far as the movie was you know it, it has to do with the drug addictions which according to a lot of people was over bloviated uh, throughout the film but I mean it was just That movie did a great job of showing the art and the craft. And unfortunately, how he became blind, but still was able to obtain this talent and change the world in that perspective. So for my number three, I got Ray. Now, as soon as you
1: said Ray, there was one thing that popped into my head. Last week, we did The Beatles. Mm -hmm. And when we finished... When we finished the episode, it had already been, been published and it was already out. Spotify already had it. you know. Apple already had it. And I sent you that list that Rolling Stone had released the greatest singers of all time. And both McCartney and Lennon were on that list in the top 25, I believe. But Ray Charles is number six on that list of greatest singers of all time. So it makes perfect sense that you would need somebody that's ridiculously talented musically to play ray charles so i love your pick i love uh jamie fox there's i have nothing against that uh like i said it was on it's on a bunch of lists uh, it might be the greatest musical biopic of all time it's not my favorite but it is arguably the greatest musical biopic of all time
0: yeah, and, and like but him. look, I'll just close on this real quickly. I don't think we really knew of his singing and piano skills, talent until we saw Ray. And I don't know. That's why I have him as my number three. All right, so what's your number two? He was also No, go ahead. He
1: was also in Ali he was in Ali too. Right, yeah, you're right, he was. So my number two is a personal pick. Uh I don't know. I think you had never seen it until I made you watch it a couple of years ago.
0: Cinderella Man, Russell Crowe. Right, right. We've talked about it on this podcast. I've only seen it, yeah, I only saw it when you told me to watch it a couple of years ago in class. too. Uh,
1: now, you're a big boxing guy, and I think uh, you. there's a little bit of a stigma there because just like I am with baseball, you're very... Let's say you could be very anal about your your boxing, the way that they they portray boxing in some films. Right. You, Rocky's your favorite movie of all time, mm-hmm. so every boxing movie that's ever released has to be second to Rocky. Right. So I I can see that, but Cinderella Man was a, a Great Depression era movie. It's about a boxer who had a you know a mid level career as a boxer, uh, broke his broke his right hand his. Mm-hmm. His, his strong hand, his lead hand, uh, right before the Great Depression hit and had to find a way to make ends meet during the Great Depression, which means he had to do everything with his left hands. He worked on the docks. He worked in warehouses. He worked uh, in every position he could find. And then his old manager comes up one day and says, We got you a fight. It's tomorrow night. You're going to get your ass kicked, but it's money. And it's the Great Depression. So he took it. But because he'd been working so much with his left hands, he now was not a he wasn't do, he wasn't dominant in either hands. Right. He naturally fought right handed, but now his left hand was stronger because that's what you know he trained himself in in other ways. Old school Rocky status. Right. And he goes out and he basically revitalizes his career uh, as this underdog, this Cinderella man. And he makes his way all the way to the top and ends up getting a heavyweight championship fight, which he had no, you know, there was no way that he was ever going to win. Uh, the guy that he fought, and he had murdered people in the ring. So this is all true story. And he ends up winning. He ends up beating the heavyweight champion of the world. And he, you know, that's, he rides, he doesn't ride off in the sunset. He ends up getting beat a couple years later and loses his title. But. I love underdog stories. Uh, it's a true underdog story. It's a period piece. It's got Russell Crowe, and I like Russell Crowe. Uh, I th- love Gladiator. I love A Beautiful Minds. Uh, he was a great uh, uh el in Superman. There's just I can go on about Russell Crowe.
0: But we'll leave it there. Cinderella Man, well, phenomenal. Ron Howard, he he is a master director. I mean, he comes all the way from the 1950s. He was a child actor, and and Ron, yeah, yeah, he was was it not
1: Opie? Was it Opie? Yeah, I think it was Opie. Yeah, from On, uh, the 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 uh, the Griffith Show. Yeah, the, it Mer, called? The, Mer, the, uh, the Merv Griffin Show. Yeah, that that one. Oh. We're old. We're not that yeah, old. We're not that old. <laughs> I'll, I'll call my dad
0: and ask him, but. Yeah, he has a great way and and those boxing I will say this about Cinderella Man. Yeah, you're right. Rocky is my favorite boxing movie and the choreo- the boxing choreography and boxing is totally outrageous, especially in Rocky. But what they did in in Cinderella Man it was very much more realistic the the fighting form that he had, especially for back in, in when he fought, uh, who was what was his name? Uh, Braddock, right? If I'm mistaken, the boxer? yes, yeah.
1: yes, Braddock, James J. Braddock, but he James called J. Him, Braddock. he
0: called him Jimmy. Yeah, Jimmy Braddock, that old style, that old World War II style around there, Great Depression form of fighting, they did capture that very well, and I appreciate that pick. I'll admit it. I didn't really want to watch it. But when I did see it, it was fantastic. I'll be honest with you. So I'm happy for your number two. Well, what is,
1: let's, can you raise the stakes? What is your number two?
0: I'm going to start with, you know, last week when we did the Beatles, I sang my number one song. Don't let me You know that one, right? Don't let me down. <laughs> I'm going to do the same, and I'm going to rehe- redo the speech. Or the line, or the word, or the name, and let's see if you can figure out where it comes from. All right. Richie, uh, talk to me. Okay.
1: Chris. <laughs> no, you talk. You talk to me. You tell me why you think that is better than Cinderella, man.
0: It's La Bamba, man. La Bamba. La La
1: Bamba. Yes, and I'm not gonna lie. If every I've heard over and over and over again uh, from plenty of women (laughs) that they think uh, – damn, what's his name? The guy who plays – Lou Diamond uh, Phillips? Nah, Lou Diamond Phillips. Lou Diamond Phillips, I've heard from almost universally every woman that I've ever showed that because we used to show it in class. We used to show it the same – the same conversation, the same lesson that we used to teach Elvis to our kids—the mm. post-World War II change in culture—we used to show uh, Richie Valens, and we show the Lou Diamond Phillips scene where he sings "La Bamba." And uh, I've showed it to girlfriends, I've showed it to wives, I've showed it to sister, my sister, and they all think, "Oh, look at—he's so sexy, he's so gorgeous."
0: Why is he looking guy?
1: I'm not gonna lie, he is, but. But Valens, I don't think Valens is that good-looking.
0: Yeah, he was a little weird-looking. That's, you know, part of the... Probably the, one of the major reasons why they made him change change his name to become more Anglified, because his name was actually Richard Valenzuela, if I'm not mistaken, so he can connect to the to the mainstream audience that was buying rock and roll in the 50s. And... But what I loved about that movie, by the way, If I'm not mistaken, this is the first movie I ever saw in a theater. I remember my parents took me to go to this theater in Far, Texas. Um, P-H-A-R-R, by the way, for those that are confused, not F-A-R, but that's the name of the city. It was one of the few theaters we had in town, and I remember watching this movie. And it opens with the plane in, in black and gray And a plane explosion. These kids looking up and one of the wings falls down on top of the kid. Maybe I'm remembering it wrong because I haven't seen the movie in in a long time. And I remember that rattled every nerve in my body when I saw that as a six-year-old little kid. And just the whole movie. The soundtrack is fantastic. The acting was great. You know, when he comes out, let me give you a little, uh, what did you say, a little rattlesnake or something like that? I don't remember. But
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly what he says. And
0: it it was just a banger of a movie. And then when it comes down to the coin toss at the very end. So for those that don't know, which you and I need to do an episode, by the way, of the coin toss, the plane crash at the very end. Where it was Buddy Holly, the Big Bopper, and Richie Valance, who was a young coming uh, rock and roll singer. They all get on a plane in the middle of a, of a snowstorm and try to fly to the next city. And it comes down to a coin toss between Richie Valence and supposedly who it's against, the movie did not depict, was Waylon Jennings. And Waylon Jennings won the coin toss. He was forced to stay into town. And Richie Valens went on the plane. And unfortunately, the plane would crash, killing Buddy Holly, who was the next superstar. And the Big Bopper and Richie Valens, and they would, they would label that day the day Rock and Roll died, which you and I need to do an episode on, by the way. But to me, this is more of a sentimental pick. I, I To be honest with you, I love the acting. I think Isai Morales, the brother.
1: Very, I was going to bring him up. Yeah. I was waiting to get my – he's phenomenal in Ozark.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, first season. Oh, first yeah. Season. First season, for sure. Yeah. Um, but. But Lou Diamond Phillips will get nominated, I think, for a global... What's the, what, what's the first award that nobody cares about? Golden Globes. Uh, Golden Internet.
1: Globes. Oh, the Golden Globes. Yeah. yeah. He, uh,
0: he got nominated for one of those for his performance. But I don't know, man. To me, that's more of a sentimental pick. That's two Mexican-American films out there. But uh, I have a connection to them. And they're very important in my community. But besides that, I mean, the, the soundtrack is a fucking banger. So, and I think the movie did a great job portraying that. And even pulling the emotional part to where, you know, Isai Morales, Bob Morales, that's his character's name in the movie, would tell the mother that, unfortunately, their son died. And you see the outbreak and the crying. and You know, it was emotional. It was an emotional movie. And you see that. So, for me, La Bamba is my number two.
1: I like that. I like that. And it's... Like I said, we used to. I used to show them uh, the La Bamba scene in class. The kids, high school kids. Right. Uh, It's good number two. I think number one is where we're gonna cross over since you haven't done it and you know it's on my. It's one of my top five movies of all time. I don't think so
0: because I picked them. I remember thinking mine was. Oh, he doesn't even like this movie, so I'm excited for it. Oh, okay, okay, okay. My
1: number one movie is one of my top five films ever made. Schindler's List.
0: Mm, if you look and at I, my paper right now, <laughs> I have Schindler's List scratched out of my Mount Rushmore.
1: What? Well, uh, I don't know. It might be the the history teacher talking to me. Right. Uh, it might be the Spiel, uh, We are uh, two Spielberg movies on the same list. Hmm. Maybe I'm I'm getting a. But uh, Schindler's List. It's a a, a Holocaust film it takes place during world war ii it came out in 1993 uh it is a steven spielberg movie it's about a a man who is secretly smuggling jews out of the country out from underneath the nazis noses uh and he saves you know jewish lives a little bit of time uh but it's it shows the brutality and only the way that Steven Spielberg can show mm-hmm. you're thinking not quite as brutal as Saving Private Ryan but if you've seen Saving Private Ryan you know the levels that he can hit uh, there are some really tense moments the factory scene where they have uh, the guy who play would end up going to play uh, Lord Voldemort in the Harry Potter movies uh, yeah that guy he comes I mean, in and. I've never seen a Harry
0: Potter, Potter
1: co- movie, so I don't know. Oh, you suck! Uh, he co- he walks into the factory and he goes up to a Jewish man and he asks the man, uh, you know, he makes a comment about how he only had a certain amount of hinges made, and he had been there for four hours or something. And the Jewish man tells him that they they. The machines had broke, and he couldn't make any hinges, which obviously wasn't his fault. The machinery right. went bad. Yeah, I know. And what they you're drag him about. out of the factory. They throw him on the ground, and right. he pulls out his his pistol, and he goes to shoot the guy in the face, and the pistol jams. Mm. Uh, and he tries to he un, he uh, you know he pulls the clip out, reloads it, and he tries to fire again. And it jams again. Uh, he then he takes the gun from his you know the soldier to his his left, and he puts the gun back to the Jewish man's face and he pulls the trigger again and that gun jams mm-hmm. and then he takes a gun from the other soldier and it jams so it's like one of those you're waiting for one of these guns to go off it's like one of the tensest moments ever you see Jewish workers come out from behind the factory wall and they see what's going on and they instantly either start running across to so they're not caught in this uh you know they don't want to be seen, or they turn around and go back the other direction. Uh, it's just one of those moments, and eventually, that he gives up. He pistol whips the Jewish man and then walks away. Uh, it's just it's brutal. It's a brutal movie. The scene where the little girl in the red dress—everything is black and white except the little girl yeah. in the red dress walking yeah. down the street. Mm-hmm. Uh, just it's it's phenomenal. It's a great movie. Uh, it you know it. I didn't see it in the movie theater because it came out when I was like four or five years old so obviously a holocaust movie my dad wasn't going to take me to see a holocaust movie right but i've seen it plenty of times since
0: um spielberg like i said when you brought up catch me if you can a master in keeping the pace right when people would you know this was the 90s and people were like no nah, we just don't want to see black and white anymore and what shin uh what steel spielberg did creating this movie is because when we think of that time, the World War II era, we think, I, for some reason, I don't know if this is just me or, or what, but when I think of that time, I kind of think like the pictures are in black, black and white, like the people were in black and white for some reason, and I kind of think that's what Steven Spielberg was trying to do, and keeping the little girl in the red-pink dress throughout the entire movie, it, it shows you why uh, Spielberg is at the level that he's at that creativity, right? The creativity to thought of, why don't I just make this little girl, we, we never hear her voice, we never get a close-up picture of her face, keep her at a distance, because that's how the emotion was back then. The Jewish people, unfortunately, sorry Kanye West, unfortunately, they were in hiding, they were in deep fear, they were in panic, and it didn't matter if it was an 80-year-old woman, or eight-year-old little girl, like the one in the movie, they were going through that hardship. And Spielberg, uh, Spielberg caught that emotion tremendously. So I love your number one pick. Yes, and like I said, it's one of my favorite movies of all time.
1: There's only a couple movies that I would say are better done, more well-crafted. I love Shawshank Redemption. Yeah, I thought about that I one love... too. <laughs> but it's that's not a biopic. That's not based on a real person, is it?
0: Uh, I'm not sure. No, that's a Stephen King book.
1: Yes. so, yeah. yeah. But yeah, Shawshank Redemption, phenomenal. But, uh, uh, not Stephen King, it was
0: when Stephen King went to prison. I'm just joking.
1: (laughs) Yeah, he secretly wrote it about himself. (laughs) No, uh, Schindler's List, that's my number one. That is my, uh, Abraham Lincoln of our Mount
0: Rushmore. Oh, so I'm surprised Lincoln was not your number one. It been, was boring. That would have been perfect for this it was, uh, Mount Rushmore, by the way.
1: It was boring, and when I said that Catch Me If You Can was long, isn't Lincoln like four hours long? Yeah, it
0: feels like it's like Avatar Part 3, you know. Which, by the way, I saw Part 2, Avatar, loved it. Loved it, considering how too. much I did not like Part 1.
1: Way better than the first one. I, I 100 it. I would go see it again.
0: Okay, so yeah. my number one is Martin Scorsese, Goodfellas.
1: I thought you were going to say the Irishman, and I was going to be like, okay, podcast's <laughs> over. We're retired." We're looking
0: for a new co-host. No, I am going Goodfellas. It's based on Henry Hill, you know, a mobster that would end up, it, it documents the life of being a mobster. And I remember a couple of years ago when you and I were testing uh in texas we have a star test where everywhere twice a year we give a test based on the major subjects and we test the kids and if they pass they're smart if they don't pass they're stupid right and it's a dumb test and i remember i was reading the book that it was based on called wise guy by nicholas uh, i think his name is nicholas Pillesi, if i'm not mistaken and we couldn't bring in any reading material and this book if you ever look at it it's from it, it looks like one of those stephen king books and I perp- I showed up an hour early and I made copies of about half of the book just so I could read it in class while the kids were teaching because if you've ever m- monitored one of those classrooms while kids are teaching, you're looking at a wall for four to five hours and nobody's talking and when I'm in a room where it's pitch quiet like that and the kids are just testing, you want to bash your head against the wall and for me I made these copies of the book and I was reading it while the kids were testing so in case a teacher walked in it looked like I was looking at regular documents. But anyways, back to the movie. I think this movie did a tremendous job of showing you, putting, uh, putting a good, uh, giving the audience a glimpse of the mobster life. Whether it was Joe Pesci's character, you saw the ruthlessness. What, what would happen if you're a rat? What would happen if you're not Italian or uh, Italian, and you wanted to be a part of the mob? How you cannot become the word they call it. The ter- the main term is called made. If you wanted to be made, that means that you're untouchable. And the movie did a great job of depicting how somebody would get made in the mob family. Of course, it would later be done in the Sopranos, but. The movie also emphasized how Henry Hill would become an informant for the FBI and pretty much rat him out. And and it ends with him, spoiler alert, uh, going into, what is it called when they remove people from society? What is that called again? Uh, Where they relocate him? Witness Protection. Witness Protection. Right. Witness Protection. And I don't know, I just, the tremendous pace, Scorsese, I know using that word a lot, also the same thing. Phenomenal soundtrack as well. He tends to use uh, rock and roll, Rolling Stones, rock from the 50s, 60s, and 70s to uh, set up a pace to the movie at hand. Even though the movie took place in the 50s or the storyline took place in the 50s and the 60s, he would use modern music to, uh, I guess you can say, tell the story. And for me, Goodfellas, top five movie of mine of all time. We do a Mount Rushmore of our favorite movies. It's definitely on there. So that is R.I. my R.I. number R.I.P. Ray Liotta. Yeah, Ray Liotta. R.I.P. Yeah. I know.
1: Yeah, uh, I knew that it was one of your favorite movies. I'm I like Goodfellas. I've seen it a couple of times. It's not my favorite. Uh, I also don't like The Godfather though. So you can't really hold my taste in crime movies. Yeah, that's uh, a problem. <laughs> very very high uh I think Martin Scorsese is one of the best of the best of the best at depicting, like you said, that true crime that that uh, that idea of I don't know the the ruthlessness of the streets right, so to speak right. And I mean while I think uh, Spielsberg can create, you know that that weight of a moment, I think Scorsese creates that idea of... uh,
0: Well, I mean, uh, look. Well, look. One of the most iconic scenes is when they go on a murder spree and Scorsese, I talk about the soundtrack, plays Layla while showing all all the dead members of the mob so that they can keep the money from the heist that they committed throughout the movie. And... That's part of the storytelling. Why I love this biopic so much, when it comes to putting it on my Mount Rushmore. So it has that iconic wor- scene in there and everything. So that's the acting was phenomenal. The word I would, the word I was looking for was stakes. Because
1: mm. uh, it's not just, I, I take back what I said about just the the dirtiness of the streets. He did movies like Wolf of Wall Street. Right. Different level of stakes. Right. But it's that. He can take a subject that's boring, like uh, Wolf of Wall Street, and make it interesting because he raises the stakes. Right. The Departed, I think The Departed's a better crime movie, by the way. The Departed, uh, same idea. I thought then, about it. I think he, keep, he keeps going back. He did The Irishman. I made a joke about that earlier. Uh, I think he's dip, he's dipping into that, that that well a little too much. Yeah. I love Gangs of New York, one of my favorite movies of all time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's more of a a period piece than Godfather. Right. I mean, uh, Goodfellas. Yeah. But great pick, yeah. great pick. You managed to uh, to meet my Spielberg with Scorsese.
0: <laughs> yes, sir. And we could do a whole Mount Rushmore on Scorsese as well that Spielberg.
1: Because one of the the big biopics that we didn't mention is Raging
0: Bull. Right, right. And I believe me, I have it written down right here as well. <laughs> About
1: so it. you're right. Spielberg and Scorsese, they're they're the biopic guys. Right. They're the two. Definitely. My fifth my fifth man uh so we can get that out of the way. It was not one of the ones that any of us mentioned. It's a personal pick. I love the movie, the Disney movie, mm-hmm. Invincible. Invincible with Mark Wahlberg Wow. about <laughs> sh- Hey, I Look, when I our, saw the movie, fifth man, it, <laughs> our fifth
0: man is supposed to be short. So I'll let you, yes. I'll let you give when your please.
1: <laughs> Go ahead. When I saw this movie, uh, it just made me feel good in all the different ways because I love an underdog story, and he was a true underdog. I'm not an Eagles fan. I did consider it when I moved to Dallas because that would have been gr- great conversations. But I, I'm, I stayed firm with my Dolphins.
0: Unfortunately, I do have a friend that's an Eagle fan. His name is Lando from my first teaching gig. So if he's listening, shout out to him. But anyways... uh. A horrible pick because my Perfect. my six-man, because obviously I'm a Cowboy fan, but whatever. My six-man was also football, coincidentally. Rudy? Rudy.
1: Rudy. Ah, see. I thought you were going to go with that on your list. I'm surprised it didn't make yeah, the full list. Yeah, yeah.
0: Six-man, uh, same like yours. Uh, tremendous underdog story. You know, Joe Montana refuted a lot of the scenes, but come on. We're talking about it's a movie here. They're supposed to... Over below V8 scenes. Um, But the real, if you want to see the real sack that he did, spoiler alert, it's actually there on YouTube. You can actually see the scene. um, The real footage of it. But I love the underdog story. And one of the undertones that I loved about this movie, similar to Goodfellas, soundtrack, man. That soundtrack with the instrumental, the orchestra, and the the symphonic orchestra playing World-class, iconic in my opinion. You know me. I'm a phenomenal whistler. Not as good as my dad, but I'm a phenomenal whistler. That's where I practice my whistling on the Rudy soundtrack, man. So I love that soundtrack. And that's why I have it. That's the main reason why I have it as my sixth man or fifth man, whatever you want to call it.
1: I think we should do more true crime slash film-driven episodes because... I've been we've I've been cutting myself short all episodes trying to keep this short and I still think it's gonna be the longest episode we've ever done I think so too. but I had a lot of fun with this one and we could do uh, I'll do film episodes till I die, but we're a history pro- podcast right. so w- we gotta we gotta stay history yeah, but I managed we hey, there's no better film history film than a biopic and i think that we managed to hit home runs with all
0: 10 of our picks i love this episode of course i always say that for every one of our episodes but look um our last episode the beatles was that we got a huge response and i love that and just keep them coming guys if you want to reach us reach us on our instagram called cancel teachers got any last words
1: I have zero last words. Uh, if you want to hit us with who, what you think are the best biofics of all time, if you want to tell us uh, what you think of Jeffrey Dahmer, if you want to uh, just talk in general, mm-hmm. uh, I have no life.
0: I'm a teacher. <laughs> Send us a message. Yeah, I'm taking a year-long sabbatical, so I got nothing to do, so I will respond to your <laughs> message too. <laughs> but, yeah, good episode, man hey if we're not back in
1: five minutes just way longer and yes I did go see that new Avatar movie Uh, I I took my my pops when he came out for Christmas and uh, I loved it way more it won't make as much money as the first one but I think it deserves way more money than the first one
0: yeah I saw it over here in the Philippines and it had a good response over here I did not like the. I didn't like part one I will admit the technology is unbelievable But the storytelling was 10 times better than part one. The part one, the storytelling of part one was so generic in my opinion. Really hurt the film. I mean, I guess it didn't because it broke records, but I don't know. Part two did it, had a, had a better pace to it and I enjoyed it a lot.
1: Well, they've greenlit another three.
0: And supposedly they already filmed them because he didn't want to do the whole, he didn't want to outage the characters.
1: Yeah, the kids. They already filmed three. They filmed parts of four. They haven't filmed filmed any of five because they they he didn't want to go too far uh, in case they didn't give him that green light. But he, th- I guess three's done. They've he's already filmed all of three. That's good, man. That's good. So we should get it next Christmas. Hope so. Well,
0: we'll see you in the uh, Super Bowl, Cowboy- man.
1: Cowboy Dolphin Super Bowl. We'll see you in the Took Super Bowl. Took the words Bowl. right out of my <laughs> mouth. And hopefully Tua could survive a game without getting concussed. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Oh well, Tua Tagovailoa. I got his jersey. I'm gonna wear it to school tomorrow.
0: To and celebrate. gonna get made fun of by yeah. all. Yeah, <laughs> to you're celebrate. Gonna, yeah, you're definitely gonna be made fun of, for sure. Dolphin fan in, in Dallas. Dallas. <laughs> Dolphin fan in Dallas. Dolphin fan in Dallas.